Future Church, Chapter 4, 60 Years, How 20th Century Church Growth Influences 21st Century Leaders. When I started serving a church fresh out of seminary in the 1990s, I was attracted to the best church-for-the-unchurched models. But around the year 2000, not long before I began working with churches as a consultant, I started catching the currents and winds of an emerging Gulf Stream, new thinking about church and the mission of Jesus. Twenty years have passed since then, and we currently live in a time of unprecedented complexity regarding church methodology. For the first time in two decades, I believe we are ripe for another paradigm shift that is now in the making. In fact, future church means to reframe that shift. My mentor, Len Sweet, was the first to model for me up close the reality that a great futurist will always be a great historian. He uses an analogy from golf. To hit the ball farther, you need a deeper backswing. Similarly, a church consultant's work sometimes resembles that of an archaeologist. When I get to know a church, I dig through layers of ministry sediment consisting of programs, structures, and philosophies laid down by leaders and influences of earlier eras. What every church does today is the product of the layers already laid down with contemporary ministry ideas sitting on top. Many older churches have as many as four ministry paradigms influencing today's activities, despite the incoherence of the different philosophies. As I have gotten to know the geological layers of North American church ministry, I have concluded that a church growth model becomes increasingly pervasive over 20 years before it peaks and begins to be overtaken by a new one. From 1940 to 2020 then, there have been four generational waves of how to do church. We might think of these as eras of church growth, each a response to the social circumstances of its time and also often a reaction to the ministry model that came before it. This book predicts the paradigm of the next 20 years, and therefore it describes a full century of church growth eras, the 80 years behind us and the 20 years still ahead. For the moment, we will tour the first three eras, which extend from about 1940 to 2000. Keep in mind that dates are approximate. There are always churches that exemplify an era before I say it begins and after I say it ends. Also note that I display the models and the differences between them in high contrast to make them easier to recognize, even though many churches were never pure examples of just one paradigm. Caveats aside... The purpose of our tour is to show how generations of 20th century assumptions still pressure 21st century leaders to define success by the input results of the lower room. The Wartime Revival, 1940 to 1960. In 1940, multiple challenges stressed Protestant churches in the United States. In addition to the national crisis of economic depression and a spreading global war, Fundamentalists were still licking their wounds from losing denominational institutions and cultural influence to liberals in the church and the academy in the 1920s, and they were still huddling behind circled wagons in their religious tribe. But a national religious revival began during World War II that generated enormous church growth. The uplift in church attendance became most pronounced during the early years of the Cold War. The growth came from two sources— that were neither precisely inside nor outside the church. In this era, church growth came from beside the church, the interface between congregations and wider movements. 
One of the growth engines was the work of an emerging generation of fundamentalists who wanted to re-enter and influence American society again. They wanted to hold to orthodox doctrinal convictions, but they were tired of playing defense and sought to re-engage the nation with the gospel and biblical truth. Some were intellectuals and institution builders who labored to replace the structures lost to liberals in the previous generation. But others were a band of evangelists who captured young people's attention under the banner of Youth for Christ. These evangelists gave the Anglo-American revivalist tradition a facelift and found eager audiences. In 1943, they began filling arenas with teenagers looking for something to do in their cities amid the gasoline rationing of the war. Soon, thousands were making commitments to Christ. After the war, Youth for Christ preachers expanded their appeal to a broader audience, and the movement went supernova when William Randolph Hearst's newspapers began publicizing the 1949 Los Angeles tent meeting of Youth for Christ evangelist Billy Graham. The other growth engine of the wartime revival was the looming threat of global communism following World War II. Intensified by the danger of nuclear annihilation, Americans increasingly saw their country not only as the guardian of democracy and liberty against totalitarianism, but also as the godly opponent to godless communism, a common slogan of the day, a link that Graham himself implicitly encouraged in his preaching. The term Judeo-Christian was coined to fold previously marginalized Catholics and Jews into the Protestant nation as a united front. Under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance. In God we trust was made the national motto. Americans boldly agreed with then-president-elect Dwight D. Eisenhower's remark, Our form of government has no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith. And I don't care what it is, but it must be a religion with all men created equal. The church came to be seen again as a highly important community institution, a rallying point for upstanding citizens, and therefore a place to see and be seen. During the Eisenhower administration, as many as four out of five Americans attended a worship service on a given weekend, the highest mark in American history. As a community institution, however, the church was often indistinguishable from the exploding number of fraternal, charitable, and youth organizations, all of which gathered doers of good and were sanctified by ritual prayer at their orderly meetings. Growth in the wartime revival came from next door to the church from the parachurch and civil religion. The church's job was to be a stalwart, soul-saving, morals-inculcating, nation-supporting pillar of the local community alongside others. The individual Christian's job was to be a godly community member and attend revival meetings featuring traveling evangelists, forming the studio audience for the spectacle in which sinners in attendance might be saved. Between genuine awakening by the Spirit of God and patriotic anxieties, Churches did not have to do much to grow in the 1940s and 50s besides unlock the door on Sunday morning. The Golden Era of Denominationalism, 1960 to 1980. By the time Eisenhower yielded the White House to John F. Kennedy in 1961, the wartime revival was losing steam. National unity was beginning to be torn apart over segregation and civil rights. And soon, by Vietnam, the sexual revolution, feminism, and a devastating loss of faith in the trustworthiness of institutions. 
New Age religion would eventually present Americans with spiritual options far outside the Judeo-Christian mainstream. But the church did not know this at first. The problem it saw in 1960 was not a social or cultural problem, but a demographic problem and an opportunity. The baby boom was in full swing, and home construction also boomed in the suburbs sprouting up around North American cities. Each denomination realized that if it did not erect buildings and plant congregations in the new communities, another denomination would, or no one would. In response, denominations set up franchises to suit church people's religious preferences in suburban growth areas. The church planting initiatives of the 1960s and 70s often had less to do with disciple-making than with math. I once consulted with a United Methodist Church in a Houston suburb that began growing explosively in the late 1970s. As I got to know the church, I watched a video that gave the pitch for why the church needed to be founded. Methodist Brass knew that the community would grow by X residents in the ensuing years and that Y percent of the new townspeople would be Methodist. Therefore, a church had to be founded to accommodate them. The church's job was to put door hangers on the homes of new residents to catch immigrating Methodists and perhaps draw in a few others. I recently talked to a Southern Baptist denominational leader in Ohio who described the church growth of his era as grits evangelism. Evidently, Southern pastors attempting to start a church in the North would wait and watch for people to pick up a box of grits in the supermarket aisle. Then they would introduce themselves as the pastor of the new Southern Baptist Church in town in hopes of winning new congregants. There were few established community organizations in new suburbs, so the church responded by becoming a full-service community organization itself, a place where something was on the calendar for some member of the family every day of the week, catering to every need and interest. There was a program for everyone, from a choir to a softball team to Alcoholics Anonymous to a women's Bible study while the kids were in school to a men's breakfast on Saturday morning. New church constructions featured Christian education wings that resembled new elementary schools, and Sunday school became the relational connecting point for children and adults alike. The church growth lessons of the golden era of denominationalism were first, if you build it, they will come, and second, a church for the whole family. The result was a programming philosophy that more is more. If a church had the volunteer force to staff a program and the money to build a facility for it, people would join the church to access it. The New Permission Era, 1980-2000 to 2000. The suburban church planning strategy was in touch with the residential construction trends of its time, but it ignored the staggering cultural shifts of the 60s, so-called the period actually spanned from about 1963 to about 1974. By 1980, it was no longer safe to assume that people were looking to attend a church of the denomination in which they were raised. More seriously, it could not be assumed that people were looking to attend a church at all, even though the vast majority had a church background. Emerging leaders began to grapple seriously with the problem of reaching millions of lost, de-churched baby boomers and their families. Some, most prominently Rick Warren in Orange County, California, and Bill Hybels in suburban Chicago, attempted to go back to the drawing board, discard the church paradigms they knew, and design a relevant experience from the ground up that would draw lost people to Christ. 
The church was to be built for the outsider, not the insider. Everything was reimagined from the perspective of the seeker, a fairly new term in the ministry dictionary that rapidly rose to prominence. Formal was out and casual was in. The sound of worship and flow of the service were entirely converted to new forms springing from the soft rock folk songs of the 1970s Jesus movement. Sermons started from the practical felt needs of semi-secular people and ended with biblical counsel rather than proceeding from the reading of a biblical text. The welcome of visitors, soon to be termed guests, was transformed by influence of the hospitality industry. Everything in the church ran on outstanding customer service. The shift of the new permission era was, in one respect, the aftershock of a titanic economic shift that gathered momentum earlier in the century. According to Brian Sanders, quote, Futurish Paul Sappho argues that the industrial manufacturing complex was born on the impulse to overcome scarcity at the turn of the last century. The result is what he calls a producer economy, the hero of which was the manufacturer. Eventually, these factories became so efficient that they were able to not only overcome scarcity, but to overproduce. As we created and accumulated more than we needed, consumption became the primary impulse. This new era gave us what we all recognize as a consumer economy, whose hero was the marketer, the one who could convince us to want what they were selling. Unquote. Whereas the golden era of denominationalism was driven to mass-produce more churches and more programs for them to run, the new permission era was driven to market the faith to oversold, convenient-sensitive consumers. There were dozens of easy-to-spot differences between a new permission church and a church built in an earlier era operating down the road. But the greatest difference was much deeper than drums versus organ or khakis versus suit even deeper than home groups versus Sunday school. The new permission church saw itself as solely responsible to reach the loss for Christ. It did not expect any help from parachurch organizations, itinerant revivalists, civil religion, cultural Christianity, or denominational heritage. It functioned on the conviction that the local church was the only organization God put on earth to save people who disliked or dismissed what they thought they knew about the Christian faith. Every aspect of the new permission church was built for this goal. Rick Warren asserted that a biblical church has five purposes, but the outline and page count on his book, The Purpose Driven Church, gave away that evangelism was the primary purpose of Saddleback Community Church. Nevertheless, evangelism in the new permission church was conditioned by its organizational assumptions. New permission churches, especially the pioneering ones, talked about both the come-and-see and, and go-and-tell aspects of evangelism. It was Bill Hybels, after all, who taught believers to just walk across the room to an unsaved acquaintance. But the vast bulk of time, effort, energy, and manpower in the New Permission Church was devoted to perfecting the come-and-see part. Even go-and-tell personal evangelism shifted from come to Jesus to come to my church. The mature church member was expected to extend invitations to a weekend seeker service where the platform speaker would offer salvation. Because of its organizational bias, the discipleship model in the new permission church was the assimilation funnel. The term assimilation itself reveals that the objective of discipleship was to make newcomers similar to others in the organization. 
the journey of growth in Christ was aligned with steps in a process of organizational participation, from worship services to small groups to volunteer service. Growth, then, was measured by the number of participants in each program in the process. The goal was to move people into the core, the church's committed labor force and donor base, as the climax of Christian maturity. Growth in character was strongly desired and sincerely taught, but attendance, contributions, and volunteer hours were what counted because they could be counted. We will explore the new permission assimilation funnel in greater depth in part three. Note to the audio listener, here the book shows a table labeled Three Eras of Church Growth, 1940-2000. to On the table, in the header, there are three columns, uh, Wartime Revival, 1940-1960, Golden Era of Denominationalism, 1960-1980, and New Permission Era, 1980-2000. And on the left-hand column uh, is various categories, Church Identity, Ministry Philosophy, Attraction Driver, Rally Cry, Evangelism Paradigm, Worship Promise, Connection Vehicle, Retention Method, and Maturity Model. And then it describes in the table how each of the different eras addressed each of those different characteristics. So I will read the columns for uh, each era going down. For the wartime revival era, their church identity was as a teaching center with promotion of national ideals as a community institution. Their ministry philosophy was more is more. Their attraction driver, prominent option. Their rally cry, we are the best church in town. Their evangelism paradigm, disciple as audience. Their worship promise, provide unity. Their connection vehicle was fraternal organization. Their retention method was community service. And their maturity model was Christian citizen. For the golden era of denominationalism, their church identity was as a teaching center with doctrinal legitimacy and membership in a familiar faith family. Their ministry philosophy was more is more. Their attraction driver, a heritage option. Their rally cry, we are the best church in the tribe. Their evangelism paradigm, disciple as representative. Their worship promise was provide liturgy. Their connection vehicle was Sunday school. Their retention method was full service. And their maturity model was program activity. And finally, the new permission era, their church identity was teaching center with applicable truth and ministry involvement at church. Their ministry philosophy was less is more. Their attraction driver, relevant option. Their rally cry, we are the best church for the times. Their evangelism paradigm, disciple as inviter. Their worship promise was provide relevance. Their connection vehicle was small groups. Their retention method was customer service. And their maturity model was assimilation funnel. Three generations of assumptions. To repeat, churches pick up features of all the eras they pass through. Then they pass those features on to us leaders who were formed in the churches. We go on to serve churches that harbor these assumptions and that expect us to abide by them. So what are some of the assumptions about growth that churches have absorbed over the years? Church growth is secured by individual commitments made in a decision at a public event. Church growth results in the church being a visible and prominent community institution. Church growth comes from providing programs that young families want to access. 
Church growth requires a culturally relevant and inspiring public experience with outstanding customer service and hospitality for the audience. Church growth is measured by the numbers of people attending and serving in worship services and other programs arranged as steps in a linear process. Above all, church growth has to do with what organizations do, not what individuals do, except insofar as individuals support the work of the organization. All these assumptions silently pressure leaders to gauge their effectiveness in Christ's mission by body count, the number of people who show up at the organization's public events, and the size of the building required to accommodate them. These assumptions pressure leaders to devote their energies to maintaining and improving the lower room. In addition, they pressure leaders to confuse assimilation with biblical disciple-making. I have more to say on the topic of measurement in Part 2, but we are not done looking at what keeps leaders off mission just yet. Since churches and leaders crave church growth, an industry exists to meet that need. Unfortunately, the industry's most popular prescriptions for growth keep churches stuck in the lower room, while real church growth remains elusive.